So tonight we're going to talk about discipleship, and I want to do that through just looking at a couple of different sets of verses. So we're going to start in the book of Colossians. This is chapter one. Typical Pauline language, he usually begins by saying that he's Paul writing to so-and-so, grace and peace to you, and then he'll launch into this kind of prayerful blessing over the people that he's uh, writing to. And I thought that this one was very appropriate for us uh, as a people this evening. This is Colossians 1, beginning in verse 3. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have the great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. This is a a, a very thick text that kind of leads us into the heart of Paul the church planter and Paul the pastor um, in what he is praying for for this, this group of young believers who are together trying to form A community. If you think about Paul's letters, there's lots of appropriate connections with a young church plant because these were the people that were starting, in a sense, from scratch. Now, granted, their context was very different than ours, um, but what we see here is Paul wrestling on behalf of these people and doing so with regularity and consistency, approaching God and praying for this group that they would live in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received that they would grow and that they would bear fruit and that they would become the people that God has called them to be in unity and in love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably best known as the German Lutheran pastor and theologian who was uh, executed for uh, his alleged role in an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. Bonhoeffer was instrumental in bringing a lot of key theological ideas to the Christian community around this time, especially as one that was set within a context of, uh, there's not an adjective to put there that would summarize what was going on, but to be one who was kind of taking back and attempting to see what it looked like to follow Jesus in the midst of pure and utter disaster and chaos, and Bonhoeffer eventually sacrificing his own life for the things that he held uh, to be true. 
Bonhoeffer is also known for a book that's called The Cost of Discipleship, where he tries to bring to bear the importance of Christian living in public, what it looks like for people to actually devote themselves to following Jesus. In the introduction to that book, he sets up a juxtaposition between two ideas, cheap grace and costly grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In an earlier version of this talk, my next slide was gonna be a picture of a church and I would talk about the American church and how in some spheres it might seem as though we have sacrificed costly grace for, for this, where we have preached forgiveness without requiring anything of the people. We have granted absolution or forgiveness of sins without leading people to godly repentance and confession, or we have not demanded any sort of life change on behalf of people. Um, at times, within our, our cultural context, it seems as though people uh, err on the side of grace which I can really get behind, but if we err on the side of grace without calling people into true relationship with Christ, I think we're missing something that's very important. Bonhoeffer looks at these ideas, and, and, and to be a pastor and to read through some of these chapters again in his book, it was kind of like, oh gosh, take a moment, am I here? Are we here, are we doing this? And, and my little dumb slide of that old white church with the steeple and in the middle of the country, like, it became us. And for me, I was asking big questions about preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance or baptism without church discipline and stepping in and not just like calling people out, but, but coming alongside of them and living life with them and, and leading them to deeper levels of commitment with Jesus. Bonhoeffer um, juxtaposes this idea of cheap grace with costly grace where he says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Throughout the Gospels, we hear this language from Jesus, follow me. When Anna came up to read these texts that we've heard throughout our study in, in the book of Mark, um, and we're going to add to that a little bit tonight, Jesus kind of shows up on the scene and just says very simply, follow me. It's interesting the way people respond to this early on. It says, as he was walking uh, beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew. They were casting their nets into the lake. They were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. In Mark chapter 2, and I, I, I really appreciate this because of um, just the, the religious implications that it has in its context. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. 
In each of these accounts, we see the people that are very willing to, whatever it is that they're doing, they drop it and they follow Jesus. Now, some scholars have tried to recreate the scene here where we have um, young first century Jews going to Torah school and trying to study their way and, and gain the approval of a rabbi who would eventually show up and say, follow me, and that they would leave. And it's like almost like they've arrived into this great apprenticeship where they would then follow the rabbi. So the fact that people were dropping whatever it is that they had and following the rabbi here was not that strange. Now, they've gone on to say that what's interesting about these particular cases is that these guys are not young first century Jewish boys in Torah school. These are fishermen. These are people that have gone through the ranks and no one has called them. And then they are doing what it is that they're called to do. And Jesus, this like rabbi 2.0 shows up and says, follow me. It's like they missed the first cut that people within that religious society were, were waiting for. And they've just kind of gone on to their trade. And then Jesus shows up and gives them a, another chance. Now, I don't know if that can really be substantiated. It preaches really good. Like we can say things like, yeah, it's the outcasts and it's the, it's the people that got picked over and it's, you know, it's the people that weren't good at school. That's who Jesus wants. Um, whatever we can make of, of those first couple of call narratives where he sees Peter and James and John and so on and so forth, here in the text where he's looking at Levi, We've talked about this before. Levi, as a tax collector, was the one who has stabbed his country men and women in the back saying, I'm done. I want to make money. I want to do what I need to do. And whatever it takes, I'll do that in order to provide for myself and my family and what have you. So he seems to be like, in the parlance of our time, like the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel. The, the people that, that nobody wanted to see were the tax collectors. And Jesus just comes up to him and says, I want you. Whatever you've done in the past, whatever has gotten you to this point where you've stabbed everyone in the back and you've cheated them and you've ripped them off and you've, you've taken this money, whatever it is, I want you. Follow me. And Levi, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really great to read into that text, but just to see what, what happens to him and how he leaves it all behind, you're wondering what he's thinking about second chances. You're wondering what he's thinking about a powerful teacher at this time that would say, I want you to be with me and to learn with me and to grow with me and to then go to be sent out to do the things that I want you to do. Jesus continues on, though, in this talk about discipleship throughout the Gospels. This is from Luke. I'm going to check out a couple of passages from Luke chapter 9. This one is familiar to you um, if you've spent much time in church. It says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost that Jesus is, is expecting of these followers. It gets so much to the point where later on in chapter 9 of Luke, we meet three different people that show up and want to follow Jesus, or Jesus calls them, and they just have some, some things in, that they can't quite let go of. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This is unprompted. He just comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to be where you are I will go where you take me. The same story as it's told in Matthew adds one key word. This individual refers to Jesus as teacher, kind of hinting to this idea of Jesus, I just want to sit at your feet and learn whatever it is that you want to tell me. I just want to learn the Torah. I want you to learn your interpretation of, of the Bible and to, to see where you're going and to hear you talk about theology and just to be a student of you. 
To follow Jesus means more than sitting at his feet, Daryl Bach says, and learning Torah. It's a reorientation of life involving suffering and perhaps death. If one is to go wherever Jesus goes, one must be ready for the rejection that he experienced. And this is why some scholars would say this is Jesus' response. I don't even have a home. And you want to follow me? Have you counted the cost and what it would look like for you to leave everything and to be with me? Not just learning Torah, but being rejected, being despised perhaps, being challenged, being persecuted, going through suffering. Have you understood what that looks like? In the next vignette, it says to another man, this is Jesus now speaking to him, follow me. But he replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, this is in keeping with Jewish law. This is what a good son would do for their parents. They would kind of stick around and wait for the parent to die and then to bury them. And then whatever it is they needed to do, they would go and do. This is an Old Testament law. And this is something that, that kind of trumped other things. So for this person to come back and say, let me go and bury my father first, that wasn't too out of the ordinary. This is something that was, was expected. But Jesus' response is not expected. He says, let the dead bury their own dead and you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There's nothing that should stop you from following me. Whatever it is that you have going on, it's not as important as you giving up everything to be where I am and to learn what I have to teach you and to do the things that I'm calling you to do. Bonhoeffer of this little story says, at this moment, nothing on earth, however sacred, must come between Jesus and the man he has called, not even the law itself. Now, I don't want you to mishear this and think, okay, well, that means that I can just kind of leave my parents in the dust and not really care for them and not be there for them when they need it. That's not the point. But in this society, these are, these are integral kind of place markers for where your allegiances lied. And for this particular individual, he says, I can't go with you, Jesus, because I have things to do. It becomes even more clear in the next uh, interchange. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. Again, kind of unprovoked, saying to Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. We see hints of this in the Old Testament where Elijah, this old prophet who was just endowed with the spirit and did ridiculously crazy things, he had this apprentice named Elisha. And in the call of Elisha, Elisha says, Elijah, before we go, just let me go and kiss my mom goodbye and say goodbye to my dad. In that story, Elijah's like, yeah, sure, go, go for it. But here in this particular uh, interchange, Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What we see here in these stories is this juxtaposition between cheap grace and costly grace. People want all the benefits of following Jesus without putting in the time and without doing the things that he's demanding of us. They just want to, for us, to go to heaven they just want the blessing. They just want to be okay, and they don't want to do maybe what Jesus is requiring from them, to live a life of justice and forgiveness and mercy and grace. The things that when you actually put flesh and bones to it are very, very difficult because there's people that have hurt you in your life, and then you now have to forgive them. There's people that have hurt others, your family members, your friends, and now it's time for you to live out reconciliation, to be that flesh and bones image of what it looks like to forgive, to be gracious, to be a person of mercy, 
to be a person of humility, to follow Jesus wherever he leads you. It's this, this dichotomy between the cheap grace and the costly grace. And for Bonhoeffer, at least, these two frame what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. So as we think about this one of our three ministry goals for this year is just this radical call to discipleship. To not just turn the lights down and to give an altar call and then have somebody raise a hand and have an experience and then not do anything with it ever again, but to encourage people to count the cost, to put in the work, to be led by the Spirit, and then to do very radical things for the sake of Christ. Now, within the church, this idea of discipleship is kind of like this buzzword. Everybody's talking about it, and it's like we've got our discipleship groups, and we've got discipleship pastors, and we've got discipleship this. But really, I don't know if people quite know what that means. I want to read you something from Dallas Willard, who is like this spiritual uh, formation guru. Um, He says that discipleship is basically to gather a group of people by telling the story of Jesus. And that story will feature his resurrection and his pending return to show by example what it means to live with him now, already beyond death, and to lead others into such a life of being with Jesus, learning to be like him. Here comes the hard question. Are you ready? Is this what your relationships look like? Are the people that you gather with on a regular basis Are you inspiring one another to learn what it it looks like to live like Jesus? Are you centering your relationships around the story of the risen Christ? And are you encouraging people in whatever decisions that they have to make or whatever relationship problems that they have or whatever insecurities or issues are going on to think through what Jesus is calling them to do, to be an example of what it means to live with Jesus right now. Within this room, we've got young life leaders and we've got people that are involved in crew, we've got teachers and we've got folks that have these relationships that are set up not just with their friendships but with with their mentee type people that kind of look at them and just are waiting to be led by them. My mom always used to tell me that people are always looking at you and she always had this story of this one kid who was maybe three or four grades younger than me And I will never forget what happened one day on the soccer field. After months and months and years and however long of mom saying, you know that this person is looking at you, right? You know that this person is just waiting to follow you wherever you go, right? And I remember I was playing in a soccer game and we played at a Christian school and I had this uh, real issue with cussing, but I thought that if I could just put my jersey over my face that no one would know what, what I was saying. That doesn't make sense, does it? But I remember one time, like, I made this really nice goal, and I turned around, I had some choice words, and when I looked up, I saw that kid who was four years younger than me just looking at me like... And I remember being heartbroken by that. Because whatever kind of opportunity I had for influence was like... It was hurt. I won't say it was shattered, but it was... It was It was struggling at that moment. And I've kind of had that in the back of my head, guiding my my thoughts and and my relationships with, with other people and just knowing that, yeah, my mom is usually right and she's right here, that people are looking at you. 
wanting to be led by you, especially for the folks in the room that are vocal about saying that you're a Christian, that you're a follower of Jesus. Like, folks are looking to see and check that out, what that actually looks like. Are you one of the ones that just says that and then does whatever you want? Are you one of the ones that are actually legit in your faith? And I can honestly say that the people that actually live that out can make a difference. And it's not always the people that look the best and speak the most eloquently. It, it, it can be anyone that's, that's just radically committed to Jesus. In a sense, discipleship is just learning to be like Jesus, learning to be about what Jesus is about. When Scott McKnight uses this phrase to talk about discipleship and what it, what it means to follow Jesus, that like changed me because it's not just um, sinning less it's actually about putting into practice the things that Jesus stood for. So when Jesus shows up into this first century Jewish community and says, Levi, you're with me. How do I live that out? Where I'm seeing the lowest of the low or the person that society would not necessarily envision to be in this place or to be at coffee with me or whatever. Like how am I living that out where I'm actually becoming a person who fights for the other? the marginalized, the oppressed, the person that no one might be looking out for, how am I living that out? And then inviting them into the story of Jesus. It's not just sinning less, but it's actually putting positive traits to who you are. I think that that's what, what it takes to maybe change the world around you. It's learning to follow Jesus and to do that through commitment that we have to him. Yeah, there's gonna be moments when you score a sweet goal and you have some choice words or something bad happens and you, you struggle for a moment. It's your, your testimony is not gonna be picture perfect in every situation. There's gonna be times when you fail. It matters about how you pick yourself up. What the commitment that you have to Jesus looks like. These words that are used in scripture a lot of times for, for loving Jesus is, is just as dead set commitment to following him as if to say I am not going anywhere I will follow you no turning back no turning back like that old chorus that some of you sang back in the day learning to follow Jesus with passion I think this is something that has uh, if I can speak candidly for a moment this is something that has not really been a thing that people would use to describe us as a group yet Yet, yet. I think that when people um, put terms to TRP, it might be they think deeply or they, they, they create space for people to process things. And I want to continue to do that, but I also want people to see a group of people that are passionately following Jesus. Even just the very mention of his name might bring a smile to your face because you understand all the things that he has done for you and the grace that you have received in being forgiven by him, how that changes who we are. And good grief, this is like maybe the blind leading the blind here because I'm not exactly the most passionate person when it comes to this, but this is something that I want to encourage us with is to follow Jesus with excitement and to make the story of the cross and the empty tomb something that's compelling, not just because it's true, but because it's good, because it matters, because it can change you from the inside out it can affect the way that you view the difficulties that will no doubt come in your life. Having that commitment and that passion is all part of this discipleship and also seeing us grow together as a people. For some of us, this is not just thinking deeply. It's not just reading the latest book by N.T. Wright. 
for some of us, our growth is, hey, maybe this week let's turn the lights down a little bit and try to sing a song that's excited about Jesus and not one that's talking about how terrible of people we are. And like pushing ourselves out of the comfort zone of like, hey, let's celebrate Jesus and actually do some of the stuff that we're talking about and not just be in our heads and thinking about how terrible we are. Let's actually celebrate who Jesus is and who he's calling us to be. For, for me, like, this is a, this is a thing. Um, if you check out our Facebook page, and this is not a plug, but we, we put the videos for the, the set list that we were doing on there. And one of the videos was a 17-minute long version of King of My Heart by John Mark McMillan. And it was led by uh, uh, Stephanie Gratzinger, I believe her name is, from, from Bethel Church. And like, when I see this young woman worshiping, I want it. Like, wh- whatever it is that she has, like, I wish that for me. And it's one of those moments when, whenever Kate drags me to a party with her, fr- with like her friends, you guys know this, married, married folks, like sometimes Kate has like her friends and I have my friends and sometimes I get drugged to a party with her friends and I don't know anybody and you know that I'm not the most outgoing person of all time. If I've ever offended you just by being shy or insecure, I apologize to you, I do not mean to do that, but I'll find myself in these parties and what happens is inevitably I'll think to myself, tonight is the night, tonight is the night that I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna be funny and I'm gonna be energetic and I'm gonna be charismatic and people are gonna be drawn to me because I've got the stories to tell and I've just got the witty things to say. Sometimes when I'm in a conversation with someone, like I hear the things that are coming out of my mouth, two things. In one way, it's just, it's awful. And I know that it's a train wreck and it's happening as it's, as it's happening. I just kind of want to, I want to step away. Tessa, this is why I don't always say goodbye when I have these conversations with people. If you've had a conversation with me and I've just kind of like ushered myself out of it, that's usually just a, an insecure moment. But there's also times when I feel like, hey, I'm really on my game here. Small talk, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. I'm like smiling. And it's like that moment in Seinfeld when George Costanza says, you leave them wanting more. So it's like, I'm out of here, everybody. I'll see you later. It's like, you just, what am I talking about? Caitlin doesn't know and I, I don't quite know either. No, seriously, I mean, I really have no idea what I'm, what I'm, why I'm talking about this. Yeah, growth. So, worship leading, thank you. So, in these moments when I go to these parties, like, I want to be that, and then when I get there, it's like, I find the crab dip, and I find the drinks, and I just hang out there. And I end up being pretty rude, and it's not on purpose, I'm just scared, like, to be in my own skin sometimes. So, I'm watching these videos of this, this passionate follower of Jesus who's leading people in worship, and I'm thinking to myself, this will be the week that I do that. And what happens all the time is I get up there, and I get scared, and I get insecure, and I retreat, and I just want a drink and some crab dip. And I think that if we could create a culture where we just kind of put our hand on the small of the back of the person, like push them into being uncomfortable a bit, and I don't mean that in a, in a cliched way, but where we grow together as worshipers, or where we grow together as people who are students of the word, or we grow together as actually being a group that does something outside of these walls, where we grow together and being a people that will accept folks that maybe others don't accept, as we grow together to being a people that are just doing the work of the gospel. That is part of discipleship where we're all pushing ourselves and walking out into those very vulnerable moments where we're having conversations with people that we don't know at a party or where we're standing up here 
and we get to the place where we don't really care about you anymore. As a worship leader, it's just like, I just want to be in this moment. I've been trying to talk with Tessa about this, where it's like, if we could just worship and people could just see that, then you would follow if we could create that culture, and it's not just with worship, it's just with so many different things. And I'm, I'm wondering, as we think about discipleship, are we doing that? Are we setting that tone for people of commitment and passion and growth, all of which Paul would say is done in community? This is not you get the daily bread from the back and then you go home and you get up at five in the morning and you read your daily bread and it's good and then you just go off to work and nobody even knows that you have read that daily bread because it's not really affecting who you are, we've, we've probably met those people that like will, will do that devotion, they'll go out and then they'll just be a miserable person. When we're in community like this, encouraging and sharpening and challenging and also picking people up when life happens, when the prayers don't get answered and when you don't get into the program and when your best friend is struggling when you are being rejected or tempted or tried or what have you, like in those moments, it's not just about um, being encouraged or, or being challenged, I should say, but it's about being supported in love, allowing people that time to, to grieve and to grow and to figure out what this commitment to Jesus looks like in the midst of pure and utter disaster. Discipleship. For Paul, it's bearing fruit in every good work. I don't really want to break these down and, and go into them any, in any more detail than what we see here, uh, but as we read them, you could just think through, is this true of me? Like I said, that this was Paul's prayer for his people, and I think it's one that needs to be raised for, for us continually, but when you think about your life and the fruit that you are, are bearing, do people see it, like at your work? even more difficult at times in your own home? Does your wife see it? Do your kids see it? Do your roommates see it? Do the people where it's like you put on your sweatpants and you hang out and it's like you're in the zone, like are they able to see you bearing good fruit in what you're doing? Or are we so relaxed that it's, we become a worse version of ourselves? Are we growing in the knowledge of God? This is one that I, I love to talk about this because this gets me going. Like, sadly, I am the nerd that wants to read the newest book by N.T. Wright and just devour it and see what happens and where he's going and hopefully incorporate that into some, some good party conversation where I'm at the crab dip and I'm talking about <laughs> inaugurated eschatology with people that have no idea what's going on. That's always fun. Like, I, I love this, but if... Are, are we there where we're growing and it's not just reading books but challenging ourselves to hear what God is saying to us in the midst of where we are, in the midst of our disappointments in our jobs, in the midst of our disappointments in our relationships? Are we taking the time where we're growing in the knowledge of God where he is pushing us in different directions perhaps and do we have the courage to follow God where he is leading us? Or are we too complacent? Are we being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance 
and patience. Again, this life at times is difficult and sometimes it's difficult to follow Jesus in the midst of this, but do we demonstrate perseverance and endurance in the midst of difficulty? And I don't think that that means we just put a smile on our face and just kind of grin and bear it. It means at times that we're able to lament and petition and shake our fists and say, what is going on? Yet I will trust you in the midst of this. I think the church has done a terrible job collectively of teaching people what it looks like to live in the the lowest of the low and that pit where you have no idea what's going on, but to hold on with everything that you have, just that one little fiber where you say, I'm not letting go of you yet. And we fight, and do we see that? And this is where the community becomes important, where we can be strengthened with all this power and his glorious might to have great endurance and patience. Are we the people that are encouraging one another in this way, are we also giving joyful thanks to the Father? I hope so. Like as a pastor, I've kind of been in this place for the last six weeks or so where, where I felt like TRP was in a, in a place, in, in a, it was in a way where it's like we needed something, we needed life, we needed excitement, we needed passion, we needed to hear your stories about what Jesus was doing for you and in you and through you because we needed something to celebrate together. Are we giving thanks? And if we are, are we actually including other people in that? And I'm not just talking about thanks like, oh, I passed the test, or oh, I, you know, this happened. I mean, are we giving thanks for what, where Jesus is taking us and leading us and helping us to develop into a person that's, that's becoming more and more like him each and every day? These ideas about discipleship are fueled by um, the command that Jesus has given us to go and to make disciples. It's not just go and get people saved. It's go and teach people and baptize them and help them to obey everything that I have commanded them. It's like we're going to become followers of Jesus. It's not just we're going to have this experience and we're going back to how it was. It's we're going to be radically transformed by who Jesus is. And people see that each and every day because we are going on this path with him. So there's that, like we should be doing this because that's a command to us. But there's also something that's, that's deeper here where Paul is saying we, we practice these things because God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if we always quite get that. Your life as a follower of Jesus has been radically transformed by him. Can we see that? Are you allowing that to be true of yourself? Have we forgotten that we were once children of wrath destined for destruction? Have we forgotten that we were once on a trajectory going to this dominion of darkness? Have we forgotten that God has reached down and said, nope, I want you? Have we forgotten that as we were sitting in the tax collector's booth, and whatever that means for our society, some person said it was similar to like, a, well, I don't wanna go into it. it was, it's a bad scene. Have we forgotten that God says, nope, I've got something different for you? Have we forgotten that radical transformation where we were going in, in a certain way, but God called us into something different? That transformation from going to darkness into now being able to celebrate the fact that he has brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He has brought us into community with him. 
when we didn't even deserve it. He says, I want you to be with me and I want you to grow in this relationship and I want the world to see me through you. Have we forgotten that? There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus is hanging out with all these people and it's, you know, it's a religious crowd and whatever and this, this woman shows up and just starts weeping takes this really expensive perfume and like breaks it and puts it all over his feet. And she's kind of creating a scene. She's like kissing his feet and not necessarily in a romantic way, uh, like just kind of anointing him and just demonstrating that she would do anything for this guy to know how important that he is to her. In the midst of all of the religious uppity-ups who are sitting around saying, "Um, what is she doing? And Jesus' response is, I think, important. He tells a story about two people that have been forgiven debts, and one was forgiven like 500 days wages, and one was forgiven uh, five days wages or what have you. And it's like, the question that he posed to this dinner group was, who understands forgiveness more? Well, the person that's been forgiven a lot, he says. Yeah, that's right. She gets it because she has been forgiven much. I think sometimes when we hear that story, we say, well, I guess I haven't really been forgiven that much because I'm not you know, addicted to drugs or addicted to this or that, or I'm not like in an adulterous affair. I'm not like, you know, I'm not a terrible person. It's, I haven't, whatever. I don't. But in saying things like that, we forget that all of us in this room were heading in this way where we were part of the dominion of darkness and if we have expressed faith in Jesus if we have said I will follow you that's not our story anymore we have all been forgiven much we have all been forgiven things that we could never do to merit in any other way we have all received grace upon grace upon grace through Jesus How do we do it? Um, I'll be honest, sometimes I get to the end of a talk and I have no idea what I'm going to say. Uh, This is one where I wish I had like, oh, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, we're gonna do this other thing. I'm like, yeah, we're gonna do like small groups and we're gonna encourage you guys to have coffee with one another and just to to open yourselves up and to be vulnerable with people and we're gonna encourage you to, um, you know, be actively pursuing people that you can hang out with. If I had a nickel for every old person that said, man, I wish I could hang out with the college students and a nickel for every college student that said, man, I wish I could hang out with some old people and you guys kind of think that there's a big divide between you. Like, you can hear me saying this right now. The old people want to hang out with you and the young people want to hang out with you. I'm sorry that I just kind of threw people under the bus there by saying this is the old person crowd and this is the young people crowd. I didn't mean to do that. And I hope you're not offended by that. But still, we see that there's like this desire that we have as people to do life together and to be in these situations where we're growing and we're being challenged and we're being pushed. So do it. How are we gonna do it? Just do it. I need my Shia LaBeouf uh, meme there where he just kind of goes crazy. You guys know what I'm talking about. Five of you in here know what I'm talking about, where you've got that in the back of your head. Yeah, just, just do it. Yeah, right, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, you're right. Small groups. Yeah, do it. Opening yourself up and inviting people into your life and having dinner with people and then having the, the hard part of that is step two. It's like having a vulnerable conversation with someone where you say, how are you doing 
and then they actually answer it honestly. Or that question is posed to you, and you answer it honestly, where you're, you're committing to following Jesus in the midst of community, and you're committing yourself to inviting people in to the story of death and resurrection and how it has shaped you, where you're telling stories and you're celebrating Jesus and you're doing that together. How do we measure it? No idea. Some churches like to pat themselves on the back with, we've gotten this many people to get saved this year. We've had this many baptisms. That's just not where, where we're at. Like, I'd love for people's lives to be changed by the gospel in a dramatic way. And I would love to see more people follow that obedient step into baptism because those are the things that are easily celebrated. But for, for a lot of us, it's the things that, that we celebrate are, I had a great conversation with somebody. And I hope that it's gonna bear fruit. And I hope that people can see Jesus in me in the midst of that conversation. I was at Starbucks today and they, they heated up my coffee five degrees hotter than I wanted it to be, but I didn't get mad. Like we're all growing together, right? I don't know if that's a thing, but Starbucks employees know that people have very specific requirements for their coffee drinks, but that's neither here nor there. Like we're, we're just, we're, we're growing things and we're measuring things in community together. This is not something that you check off of a box. When I was in college, last story, when I was in college, every Monday we would go to this old busted up computer terminal and it would say, how many people did you get saved? Zero. Did you go to church? Yes. Did you go at night? No. Did you go to your mission group? Yes. How many people did you get saved? Zero. <laughs> like, and they, they wanted really hardcore tabs on, on your life in very specific ways. Like that's not who we are. We will keep coming back to this idea of discipleship because this is pivotal for who we are and who we're going to be. And to be quite honest, guys, I'm, I'm discontent with leaving it where we are. I want Salisbury to be changed because we have given ourselves over to Christ and his lordship. I want our families to see Jesus in us because we have said, whatever you want, take it. I want people in our lives to see us as, as ambassadors for justice and hope and redemption and reconciliation. I want some of you, and myself included, to take those hard steps of forgiving the person that's hurt us. I want people in this room to begin to believe again that God is good, and it's not just a line that we sing, but it's something that we are giving ourselves over to. I want people in this room to become passionate about Jesus again or maybe for the first time ever. I don't want discipleship to be centered around books and learning. I want it to be seen in how we live and the way that we serve and the way that we love. And I don't just want that to be a cliche. I want people to be able to say there's something different because we have given ourselves over in every way to what Christ is asking us to do.